0: I'm going to open them up to Psalm 94. Psalm 94. I'm sorry, 93. Skip one, didn't I? Who, who caught that? Anybody? One person. Maybe. All right. There. Two. Three. Four. Amen. Psalm 93. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up. O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becomes thine house, O Lord, forever." In Exodus chapter 15, verse 18, uh, Moses said, The Lord reigneth forever and ever. Now, in Israel's earliest days, it it was what was known as a theocracy. And that means that uh, it was governed by God himself. Uh, Eventually, they didn't like that, so they transitioned into a monarchy. And that means ruled by a single person. And oftentimes, it means ruled by a king. And it's hard for us to understand what a theocracy is. It's hard for us to understand what a monarchy is um, because those forms of government are, are kind of way out there for us. We understand what a democracy is because we're here in the West. And democracy is when a people are governed by the people. Well, this section of the book of Psalms exalts God as the great king of the earth. I want to give you some examples of this. Um, obviously, verse 1 of, chapter, of Psalm 93, the Lord reigneth. If you go to Psalm 95, verse 3, it says, The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And then if you jump to Psalm 96.10, it says, The Lord reigneth. And then if you jump to Psalm 97.1, it says, The Lord reigneth. And, and then in Psalm 98.6, it says, Make a joyful noise before the Lord your king. And then in Psalm 99.1, it says, The Lord reigneth again. So it seems that this block of Psalms is kind of here uh, for a purpose. And that purpose is, is that you have a group of Psalms that is exalting God as king. The, the great ruler over Israel. Now according to the Word of God, the whole world is headed toward a theocracy governed by God. And and these psalms have a prophetic element to them. We look forward to the day when our king, who is also God, and is also known as Jesus, returns and establishes his kingdom on this earth. And so Psalm 93 is really a reminder that that day's coming. That our king isn't just a king, it won't be a monarchy of that sort. But our king is God himself. And so this evening, we're going to look at three things this psalm teaches us concerning our coming king. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, the stability of our king. The stability of our king. And then in verses 3 and 4, we'll see the power of our king. The power of our king. And then in verse 5, we'll see the character of our king. The character of our king. So let's begin verses 1 and 2, the stability of our king. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Wherewith he hath girded himself, the world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting. Now I want you to notice here the proof of his stability. Look at the end of verse 1. It says, the world is established and it cannot be moved. You know, when you really think about the universe, it appears to be very delicate. You look up in space and you'll see a falling star. You look around, you'll see storms come, and they destroy trees and buildings. You'll see rain come, and that'll erode landscape. And we hear about things happening in space. We hear about asteroids just just kind of just flying through space, and oftentimes we're worried. Maybe this asteroid's going to crash into the earth. We hear things like global warming. We're, we're, we're warmed by a sun that's been burning for a very long time, and they tell us that eventually this sun's going to burn out. We were just a little closer to the sun, we'd burn up. We were just a little further from the sun, we'd freeze to death. Life on earth is miraculous, but we'd have to say that life on earth is also very delicate. And the fact that we continue to live, that seasons continue to change, that our water continues to be drinkable, That crops crops continue to grow. Prove to us that someone is taking care of this very delicate world. Amen? And it's God. It's God. Matthew Henry said of the earth this. He said, It is so established that though He has hung the earth upon nothing, yet it cannot be moved. That's a great point, isn't it? He has hung the earth on nothing, yet it cannot be moved. The stability of our earth, of our universe for that matter, proves that there is one more stable than even the universe that we're in. That's upholding all things by the word of His power. There's a whole lot of things we can learn about God through creation. But one of the things we can learn according to this psalm is the stability of our God. How secure our God is. How steadfast our God is. His power is also revealed in His appearance. It says He's clothed with majesty. In other words, when you see God, and you will, when you see God, He will appear majestic. The kings in that day were known for their elaborate robes, their elaborate clothing. They were adorned with these beautiful robes and crowns and scepters and they were seated on thrones that were bedazzled, for lack of a better term. But the appearance of the king was to reflect His worth, was to reflect His power. But here's the thing, the Lord doesn't need any particular clothing. He doesn't need any particular crown to appear majestic. He is majestic. He doesn't have to dress the part like the kings of the earth. God, by his very nature, is is majestic. And when you see the Lord, one look at the Lord is going to convince you of his riches. One look at the Lord is going to convince you of his worth. Verse 1 says that God is girded with with a belt of strength. In other words, when you see him, you will know that he is strong. You know, it, it, it might seem to some people, well, God's not that strong, God's not that powerful. They see the sin in the world, and they think, well, if He was so powerful, why wouldn't He keep that from happening? Maybe they see the injustice in the world, and they think, well, if He was all-powerful, why wouldn't He keep the injustice from occurring? And they come to the conclusion that God either does or doesn't exist based on what they think He should or shouldn't do. And they think, well, if God does exist, He certainly must not be very strong. Because certainly if he were strong enough, he would stop all of these bad things from happening in the world. But the problem with that is is you're mistaking God's patience for his weakness. You're mistaking God's patience for his weakness. Many a strong father has been patient with his children. Amen? Maybe they thought, well, he's not that strong after all. If he were, he would have come in this room by now. Took care of me. Amen? But they eventually found out, my goodness... My father is powerful, he's just patient. When Christ returns and and, and every eye sees him, not a single person is going to doubt his strength. The Bible describes him as having flames burning in his eyes, speaking with a voice that's more powerful than rushing water. You see, our king has this great stability because he has great power. There is no one who could ever dethrone our king. He is girded with strength. And then the third thing is, is He is eternal, and this relates to His stability. That God has been reigning before time. His throne, verse 2, is an eternal throne. And it only makes sense that a reign that had no beginning will also have no end. You know, it's very difficult for us to think that we will live forever. You know, have you ever tried to really think about that? That because you're saved, you'll know no end? You will live for absolutely ever. But even more difficult to comprehend than that is to try to comprehend the idea and the truth that God has no beginning. That there was never a time when God didn't exist. I remember, you know, coming up there, there would always be these kids and they would ask that question well, where did God come from? When did God come into existence? So the answer is God always was. Remember when He said, uh, who should I say sent me? Moses said, He said, tell him that I am sent you. And I am means I will continue to be what I have always been. God has always been there. He's the only being in the universe who exists without cause. Without cause at all. He is the eternal being. His existence is not dependent upon anyone or anything else. And that's a deep thought, isn't it? Deeper than the idea that you and I will live forever is the idea that God has always lived. And will always live forever. And that shows us the stability of our King. He's not going anywhere. And the proof that He's not going anywhere is that He hasn't gone anywhere yet. Amen? Amen. And if he were going somewhere, he would have been there by now. He's always existed. He continues to reign. The Lord reigneth. The Lord will always reign, church. Because He always has reigned. So we see the stability of our King. and Could have called it the permanence of our King. And we would have had a little bit of uh, alliteration here. But I thought of that too late. So let's move to the power of our king. Verse 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. Yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. So the power of our king. The enemies of God here are likened to the ocean. Floods. That word floods there in the King James refers to ocean currents. Ancient people respected the sea far more than than we do. Uh, They knew by experience the dangers that was associated with the sea. It was common for people to drown at sea because they were sucked out by the current when they were fishing or, or perhaps their, their boat capsized. They saw rising waves crash with force on rocks surrounding their cities. They, they saw storms blow in from the ocean that caused the water levels to rise and flood land and flood homes. And so it's not surprising that John, when he's describing heaven, says in Revelation 21 that in heaven there is no sea. A lot of people wonder, well, why is there no sea? It was because of the association of the sea. It was associated, even when you look at the Antichrist and all these things coming up out of the sea in the book of Revelation, it's the idea there was a fear there. The sea will destroy you. The sea will kill you. The ancient people knew no power greater than that of the sea on earth. Therefore they feared it. So for that reason, oftentimes in the Scripture, we see the enemy described as a flood, as waves. Because the enemies of God are powerful. The enemies of God are without compassion. They come to destroy. They, they come to take away. They're, they're noisy. Notice he says that the floods have lifted up their voices. You know, they're They're noisy. They're without compassion. They lift up their waves. So the idea here is the enemies of God threaten. And when they can deliver, they do. You think about it for just a moment. Can you plead with the ocean? Can you reason with the ocean? Can you ever expect sympathy from the ocean? No, no, you can't plead with the ocean. You can't reason with the ocean. You can't expect sympathy from the ocean. And the enemies of God would take the people of God as quickly as the ocean does, if they ever had the opportunity. Just like when the ocean would just suck somebody out to sea and there's nothing you could do about it. The ocean has no conscience. This is a picture of the enemies of God. No conscience. Not caring. You can plead all you want, but they hate God and they hate you and they'll just suck you to your death if they can. And so it's a really pretty staggering picture here that the psalmist gives us of the enemies of God. They're like the ocean. But, but notice how relentless they are. They don't quit. Notice, notice here in verse 3, there's a threefold repetition of that phrase, lifted up. You see it in there? The floods have lifted up. The floods have lifted up. The floods lift up. It's, it's used three times there. Now, why is it used three times? It's used three times to emphasize the severity of the attack. And if you've tried to live your life for Christ for very long, you know what the psalmist is talking about here. If, if you've tried to live your life for the Lord, you know that the enemy does not give up. The enemy is always lifting himself up against us. He sends wave after wave after wave our way. And if you've ever been in the ocean and kind of lost your footing or or lost your breath, and then you try to stand up and then another wave comes and knocks you down. You ever had that happen? And then about the time you get up, another one knocks you down. and, And that's how the enemy is. And there's a simple reason for this. The reason he keeps attacking us is he hasn't defeated our king. The reason he keeps attacking us is because he hasn't destroyed us. And he'll just keep trying. He continues to attack God. He continues to attack the apple of God's eye for one simple reason. He hasn't accomplished his goal yet. If he had succeeded, there would be no room for more effort. No reason for more effort. But he hasn't succeeded yet. I want to say something. I think this is good. But listen to me. Every trial in the Christian's life, every trial is a reminder to us that the devil has failed. Amen? He's trying again. Right? Every trial is a reminder that the devil has failed. Because you know as well as I do, if you had deserted God, the devil would quit. He'd quit like that. Next I want you to see here is God is mightier. Verse 4 is a beautiful verse. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. The Lord is more beautiful, more powerful, mightier than the most powerful thing that they knew. He's more powerful than the powerful oceans. Notice the psalmist mentions the sounds of the waves. And I don't know if you folks up here in middle Georgia have ever taken a vacation where large waves were common. But if you're staying near the ocean and you're at a place where large waves are common, you can open up that balcony door, you know, that sliding glass door, and, and you can hear the ocean. And it can be a wonderful sleep aid, amen? In fact, you can get that on your phone, the ocean, and just play it at night. They sell that, you know, so people can, people can sleep. And the reason is, one of the reasons that it's such a wonderful sleep aid is, is it drowns out all the other sounds. And the ocean has a rhythm to it, doesn't it? It can be soothing. It can be hypnotizing. But more than anything, the ocean has a way of drowning out sounds. Pun intended. Amen? Drowning out sounds. You ever had to you ever tried to have a conversation with someone while you were near the ocean? It can be difficult, can it? What'd you say? Especially for some of you. It's difficult and you're not even near the ocean. But the point the psalmist is making here is the Lord is mightier than the sounds of the ocean. His voice can be heard above the most powerful in the world. And the idea here is is the Lord will not be silenced. The Lord will not go unheard. You know, why why does God continue to have a people despite the loud voices of his enemies? Why, why, Why do we continue to see the church after thousands of years of loud slander and loud mockery? Why? Well, it's because the voice of God continues to speak above the noise of His enemies. He isn't intimidated by the shouts of His enemies. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing because I think sometimes we can wonder, man, how in the world are people ever going to get saved? There's so much chatter. There's so much misinformation. There's so much noise going on in our world. Listen, friend, God will always speak louder than those things. He will. He said, my sheep... They'll hear my voice. Amen. They'll hear that gospel call. Calling them to the cross. The Lord is mighty, mightier than the power of the waves when it comes to the sound. But even when it comes to, let's think about for a moment, when it comes to the force of the waves. You know, what can a single wave do? A single wave can pick up a grown man, throw him against a rock, can it? Throw him against the ocean floor. A wave can crash on top of an ocean liner and destroy it. But these waves that can pick up a grown man and smash him against a rock or or fall upon an ocean liner and and sink it, they're nowhere near as powerful as God is. In In fact, when we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus steals the waves, doesn't He? Remember in Matthew chapter 8, 27, the disciples were amazed at the power of Jesus, and they said, Even the wind and the waves obey him. Remember that? So the power of our King, Church, is it's unmatched. The, the sound nor the force of the ocean is comparable to the power of our great God. You know, oftentimes, oftentimes kings, it's funny, if you ever want to do an interesting study, like maybe study the kings of England and, and go back and look at the lineage and all, you'll learn some really weird things when you do that about the people they married and the, and the kids they had and stuff. But, but it's really interesting, when you study these kings, oftentimes you find out that the king himself is not really powerful at all. Am I right, all of you king studiers out there? I'm not talking about like kings in the Bible. We, we could do that too. But just talking about like the kings more in the last couple of hundred years. Oftentimes they're very effeminate men. They're very weak men. Oftentimes they're, they're not good decision makers. Maybe they have a powerful economy and that's helping them appear to be strong. Or maybe they have a powerful army and that's making them look strong. But it's very common for a king himself to be quite weak. But you know what? That's not the case with our king. Our king is powerful without an army. Our king is powerful without a booming economy. Our king is powerful all by himself. Isn't that good? He needs nothing. He needs no one. He is mighty. He is stable. Now let's look at verse 5. We see the character of our king. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becomes thine house, O Lord, forever. Here we see the character of our king. Obviously, verse 5, first thing we see is the word of God. Testimonies of God. Our king can be trusted. How do we know we can trust our king? Well, we've put our king to the test. How have we put our king to the test? We've put him to the test with his word. His word reveals truth. God's Word is like a rock that the waves have been beating against for centuries. The waves just keep crashing upon it, but the Word remains there. Get that in your mind. There's there's a rock, and that's the Word of God. And here come the waves, and they're crashing one after another. But what happens to the wave? The wave crashes, and the rock remains, right? And that's how it is with the Word of God. We can trust the Word of God. It's, 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 It's proven. If you don't believe the Word of God, I will guarantee you this. You haven't sought to live by it. Because if you have sought to live by the Word of God, you will find that the Word of God is absolutely true. When obeyed, the Word of God will bear fruit. When believed, the Word of God will bring comfort and spiritual growth. I've trusted the Word of God for for now over two decades. And I have found one thing for sure. The Word of God is truer than I am. The word of God is truer. I would sooner believe the Bible than I would believe myself. And if the word of God is so trustworthy, it only follows that the God who gave me this word is trustworthy as well. Because the word of God reflects who God is. You know, we have no idea how great a gift The Word of God is to us, church. Without the Word of God, we could only guess. We could only speculate about the character of God. You know, thank God for the Bible. You know, in our day, it may be common for someone to, to write a letter to some powerful person, maybe a president or maybe some big celebrity. They'll write a letter to them, send out a tweet to them or a Facebook post or whatever. But they never really expect a reply. Why? Because this person is so much bigger than they are. But in the kingdom of God, our king has written us a letter. He's given us a personal letter. He has shown us through his word how much he loves us. He's supplied us with a book that shows his ways, that, that, that shows himself. He's, he's given us precious promises that if put to the test, will will, will, be, be made, will prove himself to be absolutely faithful. He has told us what to expect in the future. He has told us what to expect when we die. Amen? I mean, He's told us so much. We don't don't even have to guess at things. Like the most important thing, what happens when a person dies? We know because He's made it crystal clear in His Word. And so the Word of God itself proves to us that our King's character is trustworthy. You can trust God because you have been trusting this Word and this Word has been helped has been sustenance to you, peace to you, encouragement to you. And this word is a reflection of him. And now let's look at the holiness of God. Holiness become a fine house. God is holy, His house is holy. And, and the holiness of God is, is a doctrine that cannot be divorced from the church. It couldn't be divorced from the temple in the Old Testament. And it can't be divorced from the church in the New Testament. In fact, we'll talk a little bit about that this Sunday when we see Jesus cleanses the temple. But God is without sin. He's altogether different from His creation. Every aspect of His creation has either sinned or been in some way tainted by sin. God is the Only one who hasn't been touched by that. Of course, there are angels in heaven who haven't been touched with it, but I'm speaking of what you see and where you live. God is perfectly holy. And the holiness of God always implies beauty. In other words, it's perfect. There's nothing imperfect about God. His perfect integrity is reflected in His perfect appearance. He is perfect... And it shows in the way He looks. And I've said this many times, and and I don't think I could say it enough, but we have never seen a being as beautiful as God. And we have never seen a being as holy as God. We will, praise God, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But we have not seen that. As I mentioned a while ago in the Old Testament, the the holiness of God was reflected in the temple. It was reflected also in the tabernacle before the temple was ever built. And then we are now what, Christians? We are His temple, right? You are the temple of God. We are to be conformed into the image of God. And did you know that you cannot be conformed into the image of God without holiness? Because the the subjects of God's kingdom are to be a reflection of the king himself. Hebrews 12.14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There has to be some measure of holiness in your life. Proving that you've been saved. Proving that a holy God is living on the inside of you. I want you to notice the end of the verse. It says that God will be holy forever and that his people will be holy his people are going to be holy forever you know as is an extension of that let me ask you a question when i tell you that when i say to you you will be holy forever you will be without sin forever does that make you happy and let me ask you another question do you need sin to be happy there are some people that just can't be happy without sin and these are people who should really look at their life and wonder where they are with God, because one of the greatest promises that God gives us is that we're on our way to His house, and that in His house there is no sin. The goal of the Christian is what? The presence of God. And in the presence of God, there is no sin. We look forward to an eternal holiness. You know, the rulers of this world are often known for their wealth or their power. Or sometimes the rulers of this world are known for their sin, aren't they? But guess what? Our earthly world rulers are never known for their holiness, are they? You never look at a politician and say, boy, he's holy. Do you? Not at all. But we have a king. And one of the great attributes that He has is His holiness. And that makes Him unlike any other ruler. And we look forward to the day when King Jesus returns. We look forward to the day when when He sets up His kingdom on this earth and, and He reigns. And I'll tell you, that day cannot come quickly enough. When Christ returns and He sets up His kingdom on this earth. And if you're reading this and you're meditating on it, the thing that you should really think about is, 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 is that part that I talked about a moment ago when I said, do you need to sin to be happy? Do you need to sin to be happy? Because I think that there, especially in our Baptist churches, is this awful, awful idea. This. Awful, what the old folk, the old theologians called antinomianism this idea that it just doesn't matter how you live, you're going to heaven because you prayed. And the Bible says the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to God. An abomination to God, the prayers of the wicked. In other words, you're a hypocrite. You come with your religious actions before God with hypocrisy. And if you know anything about Jesus, you know that He hated hypocrisy. Amen. Man, He dealt with that over and over. And and I would encourage you to to understand that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This King who's coming back, isn't coming back like Santa Claus and sitting us on our lap and saying, well, what do you want, little boy? What do you want, little girl? This King comes back to set up a holy kingdom. And the Bible says He casts out everything that is sin. And if you're so attached to your sin that you can't let go, then my dear friend, you may be cast out yourself. Because you're attached to that sin. You love that sin more than you love the Lord. More than you love Christ. This King who's returning, Revelation 19, is not coming back just to reward He's also coming back to punish. And those who are punished are those who did not find joy in holiness, but found their joy in the sin of this world and the ungodliness and the rebellion that Satan started. They find their joy in that. And so, dear friend, I would warn you if you're listening to this or even if you're here today, tonight, search your heart. And think about this coming King. Our King who's returning to earth. He said, well, I love His forgiveness. I love His love. But do you love His holiness? Do you love His holiness? Because without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becomes thine house. Holiness forever. I hope that's your desire. Father in heaven, we're grateful for Jesus.